Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Gladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Enacting the Kingdom. Welcome, Father Jeffrey. Today, we are continuing our session, our, our segments on Vespers. Um, so, so far, we've gone through most of Vespers, but we're getting to the part of Vespers called the Apostica. And I think, you know, let's define our terms before we begin. Um, apostica, that, that would, uh, I have it casually translated as the inter-psalm stanzas or the latter inter-psalm stanzas. Um, I know that that's not an exact uh, translation there, Father Jeffrey, but um, the stich, it would be something like a stanza and the apo would mean like after, the after stanzas. Yeah, um, or upon kind of thing. So it's mm-hmm. like the, the, the verses on the verses kind of thing. So in other words, um, mm-hmm. you know, composed hymns, uh, interspersed, as you say, with the, the psalm text, similar to what we had with Lord, I call and the four Psalms there where in the latter part, you know, up to 10, sometimes a little bit more, um, verses are sung, uh, in between the, the Psalm verses. Well, here, um, we just have another clutch of them, uh, before the final dismissal of Vespers. Yeah. So we, we on purpose did not talk about the interspersed stanzas during the Lord I've Called uh, series because we wanted to really focus on the Psalms and give the Psalms their due because that, to my understanding, is the more ancient part of Vespers. Um, uh, but here at this part of Vespers, the Apostica, right after the Litany of Supplication, um, it seems that this is a good space to talk about interspersing in general, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people would be familiar with, oh yeah, we always, we sing hymns about the day, right? Something about the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe Father Jeffrey, we could follow our usual style and start maybe with the biblical context of what we get here. Um, and look at what Psalms, because the, these are composed stanzas and composed hymns that are interspersed between Psalm lines. So which psalm lines are actually used at Vespers? Maybe we could start there. Okay. Um, well, I mean, first thing to maybe note is that, you know, this practice of, you know, singing bits of scripture, particularly things from the psalms, um, as a liturgical practice, and then using that um you know, especially with, you know, bits that are remembered and, and memorized and, and using them repeatedly as a, as a form of refrain. This goes right back to the, the Psalms themselves. We've hinted at this before, you know, the very structure of many of the Psalms hints at this. You get a refrain pattern, you know, to it. And you can very easily imagine that just like you know, through the Christian centuries in ancient old covenant worship and Jewish practice, you know, people would be very familiar and would have a lot of the Psalms memorized. And so as part of their worship, uh, particularly when they're in movement, you know, the, the idea of processions and, and, and liturgy outside and so forth, you can't actually just hold a scroll terribly easily and, and follow along, you know, with that. So you would go with what you had memorized. 
and people would sing together antiphonally or responsorially, uh, you know, bits of, of psalmody. And so it was quite natural that that sort of structure should continue over into the the worship of of the the early Christian church and psalms would be used in, in the same way so even when you get this development of um composed ecclesiastical poetry and in hymnography and so forth which you know we'll talk again i mean there was a tension in the in the early church between the kind of more monastic practice which was more conservative and saying no well, let's just stick to the words of scripture let's just stick to the psalms and maybe more cathedral or you know city practice where there was this tendency to want to sing as you say about the the, the themes of the day of the emerging you know festal calendar and so forth and and so you know the the kind of mashup that you get of these things where the, the psalms are used in a refrain it, it, or as a kind of anchor as well the this is the common element right this is the this is the structure of the service we can expect when we get to a daily vesper service we're going to have the same psalm used at this point but interspersed are the things that are proper to that day or special for that day so that whoever is there you know whether they have the scroll in front of them or eventually the codex or book or not, has a considerable amount of the service structurally outlined for them. They know where they are based on the use of this psalm. They may not know the words of the particular hymn of the day. It'd be very unlikely as the that hymnography grew and grew and grew, particularly from about the year um, you know 500 onwards. You start to get this real explosion of poetry and the, the kind of great hymnographers like Romanus the Melodist and so forth, and John Damascus come on the scene. And so as all that's expanded, there's no possible way you could memorize all of that. You know, you could just about memorize the Psalms was the, the point. So you would have the structure of the service in your mind. You knew which parts you could join in on, the, the kind of common elements of the service, but then the the chanters or, or cantor would would take things away for the specifics of the day. It made for a very interactive, you know, service. As I say, particularly in in city or cathedral practice. Um, now, eventually, obviously, the these things will just be fully merged. Right? There isn't today a you know a particularly monastic typicon versus a parish typicon. We have the one kind of merger of the two. But you see already, um, you know, you still still see it really the the extant elements of those two traditions that have come together yeah and and i think the part the 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 apostica that people would be most familiar with is what appears on saturday evening vespers before sunday morning um and there we usually have the hymn the hymns that are interspersed have to do with the resurrection right they have to do with the feast that we're about to celebrate on sunday morning and then the psalm that appears is actually the psalm that's used as the prokimenon um uh, earlier in the service from psalm 92 the lord is king he is robed in majesty for he has established the world so that it shall never be moved holiness befits your house O lord forevermore Mm -hmm. so is there any particular like we we repeat it here, so obviously there's a connection between this psalm, you know, the Lord is King, He's robed in majesty, and the theme of the resurrection. I think we talked a bit about that at the Prochimnon, but it seems to be important in that it's being repeated here on the Apostica of a Sunday. Yeah, I mean, the, the theme of this psalm, um, you know, Psalm 92 and the Septuagint 93 and the in the Hebrew or Masoretic numbering uh, is obviously the that God 
you know, Yahweh is king, right? So the idea and concept, which is, you know, charged right through the, the Torah and the prophetic tradition of the old covenant, you know, is that one day, it will happen, you know, no, despite everything that we see, you know, God will fulfill his promises and he himself will come and rule in Zion. And of course, there's hints at this, you know, this it's thought that maybe this psalm goes right back to Davidic times uh, and, you know, maybe to some kind of enthronement festival you know, where David stands for, you know, God himself reigning over Israel and so forth. But, you know, not long after that, you know, there's the fall, the division of the kingdoms, the fall of the northern kingdom, eventually the fall of the southern kingdom in, in the, the captivity in Babylon and so forth. And so it becomes this prophetic hope, you know, which is very similar to, you know, what you get throughout the prophets, especially prophets like Isaiah, you know, that God will come and reign. And God will, God's rule will be established and everything that is chaotic will be made ordered, which is, you know, and hints even at the kind of creational order. Uh, again, you know, we had at the beginning of Vespers the, you know, the way that God took all the waters and made them, you know, productive, right? This idea that water is chaos, water is disorder, water destroys. And yet under God's sovereignty, God's creative activity in the world, the waters are made to, to be useful, right? And so, and even in this psalm, the bits we don't uh, necessarily refer to, but we get them in other parts of, of the liturgy where this psalm is used, but the floods have lifted up, the floods have lifted up their voice, the floods lift up their roaring, more majestic than the thunders of many waters, more majestic than the waves of the sea, majestic on high is the Lord, right? This, this uh, you know, God's eventual the fulfillment of his reign over all the world will look like this. Everything will be made right. Everything will be ordered. So Yahweh has come and will be the king that the, all the nations, you know, will see. And of course, that's tied in with the day of the Lord that is the, the resurrectional eighth day. It may not be fully revealed yet, but what has happened in and through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is that that promise to Israel that Yahweh will be the king, the sovereign over all nations and over all, you know, natural phenomena, you know, is taking place. The very fact that death has been put to death means that the Lord is king. He is robed in majesty, robed and girded with strength, and his decrees are very sure. And so absolutely, this is the day of the Lord manifested. And of course, Saturday evening, Sunday morning, you know, this is the eighth day. And so it's, it's the day of the Lord come in all of that power. Yeah. And, and there's a, you know, upcoming at the time of this recording, it's going to be uh, the, our upcoming Sunday is going to be the fourth tone. And, you know, one of the stanzas of the, uh, stanzas of the which speaks a bit to this is, um, well, it's talking about the resurrection, but it also has the word, you know, the, the imagery of Christ as the king in it. So I just want to read it here because mm -hmm. this is one of the stanzas that's interspersed. It's the uh, fourth one on the page here, Father Jeffrey. With tears, the women reached your tomb, searching for you, but not finding you. They wept with wailing and lamented, woe to us, our savior, king of all, how were you stolen? What place can hold your life-bearing body? An angel replied to them, Do not weep and go and proclaim that the Lord is risen, granting us joy as the only compassionate one. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so us, uh, us that go to church, usually only for Vespers on a Saturday night, we, we might be forgiven to think that this is the only song that's ever used at the Apostica, right? Yeah. Um, you might be so familiar with the service that somebody says, Apostica, and you go, Oh yeah, the Lord is king. He is robed to majesty, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but 
uh, some of our listeners might be surprised to know that this these psalm verses are only used on uh, for the vespers of a Sunday, so Saturday evening for apostica, and uh, here and there. But um, during the day, we actually have quite different um, psalms that are used uh, in the apostica. Um, so maybe we could turn to kind of a daily version of Vespers, Father Jeffrey. Sure. Well, I mean, throughout m- most of the year, there is one particular psalm that's used. So unless it's a great feast uh, where the, um, you know, the, 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 the psalm that's used at the Apostica will, will have some kind of thematic, you know, uh, import right the an apostles we would go looking for you know uh, psalm verses that talk about the proclamation of god's word to all the earth and things like that but you know typically on a normal uh, daily vespers it's the same psalm which is a, uh, the psalm is uh, 122 in the septuagint 123 in the hebrew mm-hmm. it's one of the songs of ascent well maybe i'll just read the whole psalm since it's uh, rather short mm-hmm. um uh, I lift up my eyes to you who dwell in heaven. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of the maidservant look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he shall have compassion on us. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we, have great, we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with it. We are a disgrace to those who prosper and a contempt to the arrogant. And that's it. That's the whole psalm. And mm-hmm. we fit a couple of uh, stanzas around that. Um, yeah. yeah, we use the entire psalm, as you just said. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, this is, I, I don't know what you think, but it's one of the loveliest psalms uh, and prayers in all of scripture, right? Because it just is so simple and so direct. It is just, uh, you know, it's just spoken with, you know, really what the, an embodiment of what faith is, right? Because faith ultimately does not revolve around you know rational belief it is just this trust this 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 sentiment and and understanding that you rest within the caring arms of one who has you know not only you know sovereignty as we've just spoken of in in the the other psalm but you know just this tender embrace right so it's as say one of the songs of ascent so it's sung as people are in procession going up to Zion, going up to the temple in Jerusalem, ascending, you know, the various um, steps and levels there. And so it's this idea of looking up to God, looking up to, to God's presence in Jerusalem. And, you know, although this maybe doesn't, you know, strike us in quite the same way in a, you know, 21st century democratic egalitarian society. But I mean, this, this just tender image of, you know, as servants look to their master, as maid servants look to their mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has compassion on us. Like it's just this utter stance of trust and knowing that we are looked after that that we can in, we can entrust ourselves to this one because we will be dealt with with compassion with mercy with long suffering with with love and uh, the comparison then that's introduced is you know with another kind of 
master or another kind of ruler, a kind of earthly authority, um, you know, that those who, who, who have had more than, than, um, or those who are at ease, uh, the proud and everything. And this imagery here that re- is reminiscent of the prophecy of Amos, right? He talks about, um, servants who are exploited by masters who, who lie on beds of ivory, lounge on their couches, eat lambs from the flock, calves from the stall. They sing idle songs to the sound of the harp. Uh, they drink wine from bowls, anoint themselves with the finest oils. And what do they do in Amos? They, they oppress the poor, they crush the needy, right? And so there, clearly there's this other kind of master out there, another kind of ruler that, you know, but that's not what God is like. You know, we are, we are content to be in the presence and the care of God, you know, himself. As I say, it's such a tender and lovely, simple, confident uh, psalm that, that we use, you know, at almost every Vesper service throughout the church year. And it's, it's quite lovely. The podcast you're listening to reflects only the public half of the overall project of enacting the kingdom. Father Jeffrey and I actively post new episodes on our completely separate private podcast. This private space gives us the freedom to debate and discuss open and sometimes controversial questions regarding the Orthodox faith amongst a smaller and more dedicated audience. If you become a patron now, you'll get immediate access to our growing backlog of private episodes, including a discussion on the ordination of women and the coronavirus multiple spoon controversy. To get access to this private podcast, go to pryingpriest.com. Looking forward to having you join our growing community on Patreon. Now back to the show. One of the things that I'm noticing in the daily context, whereas in the Sunday context where the psalm chosen for the apostica is about kind of Christ being the king, and then we sing all of these hymns about the resurrection and his, you know, his um, triumph over death, those themes seem to fit. But here in a daily context, it it seems that the stanzas, at least in the service that I'm looking at here, don't necessarily have a sort of one-to-one thematic connection with the psalm verse. No, they won't, because I mean, these are, you know, it's just typically things, they'll either in a daily service and Vespers come, you know, from be from the Menean, if it's an important enough saint or collection of saints, there'll be hymns uh, composed for them that, that kind of spread to this part of the service, or it's from the Octoichos, so just the eight weekly um, cycle of, you know, daily, you know, hymn- hymnography and so forth. And so, you know, depending on the day of the week, it'll be about the angels, about St. John the Baptist, it'll be about the cross, it'll be about the apostles, right? Um, we've talked about that before, about the daily, um, you know, the various commemorations for, for the day of the week. And so, you know, beyond that kind of wider context of, you know, the very point of being in worship in God's you know, community and, you know, within his covenant family is that we are there because we trust in God precisely in this way. You know, we, we've made God our king and our master, our sovereign, and entrusted our whole selves to him. And then within that context, you have saints, you have the cross, you have apostles, you have, you know, St. John the Foreigner, etc. You know, so it all makes sense in a kind of meta context but you know there's not really any sort of sense that trust or you know the the contrast between god's care for us and and that which you know earthly rulers might give um 
you know that that's not one necessarily a, a theme that that the hymnographers have, have have you know put in here. And in some senses, they weren't actually composing necessarily for this part of the service. In a sense, the apostica, because we've already talked about kind of an end to Vespers in a way, right? With the the litanies, with the particularly the kind of missional litany of, you know, the the, the evening supplication, which culminated in that bowing of the heads and the, the kind of dismissal by the senior uh, cleric, you know, if a bishop was present, you know, where people were kind of had their laying on of hands and a kind of sending out into the world that's already happened right so in a way the apostica another way of thinking about the the verses on the verses is that you know this is where the spillover of that outgrowth and explosion of hypnography you know came so in other words people are just writing about these saints about these feasts and so forth and we needed more places to put them and so you get this kind of tacking on to the end of Vespers here, you know, where previously it would have ended more or less at the the dismissal, the bowing of heads and and, and prayer and, and so forth. Uh, now you've got this kind of extra whole section uh, tacked on to the end of Vespers here. And so, uh, you know, essentially whatever hymns you had left, you you would collect together, use the these kind of key psalm verses as interspersed, you know, with them. But it, it kind of, it, it doesn't have a thematic unity that say composing, you know, on particular verses uh, might have done if it had been in the first place. When we get to Matins eventually, we'll talk about the canon and the development of that. And there's a much clearer you know, connection between the the composition of canons on, you know, festal commemorations and so forth with underlying scriptural texts to the point that when the scriptural texts themselves disappeared, you can still kind of read them into the service from the composed hymnography. Well, that's not the case here. It's not that someone had the psalm in mind when they went and wrote about a saint or about, you know, you know, the ones we're looking at here from the Triodion, right? So it's just about Lenten themes of, you know, repentance and so forth. They, they don't have a one-to-one connection at all with the, the psalms that are used to just break up the hymnography. Yeah, and one thing uh, that's coming to my mind right now is that the apostica. I mean, we're not talking about matins, but the apostica does appear in matins as well for certain uh, for certain solemnities of the matin service. Yeah, l- low solemnity. End. So a daily matin service has an apostica at the very end, just like mm-hmm. vespers does, and it's the similar kind of thing. You know, it's like we have more hymns. What do we do with them? And so um, they get thrown you gotta into. Got to use them. Gotta use them. them, yeah. Because in, in daily mans there aren't uh, interspersed verses on the praises. That's you know Psalms one forty eight through one fifty, uh, and so you have a postica instead. So you know we've got a postica at matins. It's just a kind of ordinary, regular daily service as opposed to well Sunday matins or or in one on a feast. Right. Right. Um, yeah, so what I'd want to do now is continue looking at particularly the psalms that are used, but maybe turning to a festal Vespers, right? Mm-hmm. So Vespers on a feast day, the Apostica on a feast day. The one I want to look at is the Annunciation. Um, so the Annunciation being when the angel Gabriel comes to the Theotokos to announce the conception of Jesus Christ. And um, there are two particular verses that are used with a, uh, hymns being interspersed between them. Uh, one is from Psalm 95, verse 2, and one is from Psalm 97, verse 1. And these are much more thematic, <laughs> right? So you can clearly see um, how these are. Uh, I mean, these could be connected to many different feasts, but they're clearly put here 
because it's a celebration, right? Um, so I'll read them here. Uh, they're very short. Proclaim from day to day the glad tidings of the salvation of our God. That's one of them. And the other one is sing to the Lord a new song for the Lord has done wonders. So clearly trying to capture the joy of the feast, the um, this reference to glad tidings, right? The angel Gabriel coming to say rejoice, um, sing to the Lord a new song, right? Lord, the Lord is doing something new in the world. So even in these small little verses here for the feast, there's a lot of actually packed in here in reference to the feast. Yeah. So, I mean, the process here, you know, is precisely to go and, you know, look through the Psalms, find verses that are thematically linked to the feast. This happens, you know, across all the great feasts of the church. Uh, and interestingly, you know, th there's a connection here to, you know, what we get on Saturday evening uh, in the sense that there's a whole series of Psalms that celebrate God's kingship, right? The, this kind of enthronement of Yahweh in Zion, the, this kind of, you know, either hearkening back to some kind of original moment in David, you know, when it looked like things were going in the right direction, you know, with this or, you know, more importantly, throughout the whole history of Israel, it was a kind of prophetic expectation, God will come and establish his kingship in Jerusalem and will be known as the king of all the nations. Well, there's a whole series of these Psalms, and it kind of they're kicked off by that one that we have on Saturday evening. Well, both of these verses, um, they're taken from two different Psalms, but they're from that same series of Psalms about God's kingship and so forth. So they are about the same moment, the day of the Lord, you know, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations and his marvelous works among all the peoples. This is about you know, that revelation to the whole world, to all the nations, to all the Gentiles, that the God of Israel is the true king of all. Don't you know it? And and so, you know, both of these verses, um, you know, come from Psalms, you know, they're two apart. One is uh, Psalm 95, the other 97 in, in the Greek, uh, but they're part of the same series. And so in this moment of the Annunciation, not only have we picked up, well, this is a good thing to kind of sing about, proclaim, you know, uh, the, the, the salvation of God to the whole world kind of thing. But in fact, the very Psalms that these are drawn from are about God coming to his people and establishing his sovereign reign over the world. Well, what's happening in the Annunciation? You know, what is this about? What are we singing about? What is the angel announcing to, to Mary, except that this is now those promises being fulfilled in this overshadowing of this young virgin? God comes to his people. And so, you know, again, we, we've spoken about this before, but it, we should be so familiar really, with the Psalms, that we're not just sort of saying, oh, isn't this interesting? We can take this one little snippet of a verse from a Psalm, and it it, it it on its own makes sense in this context. But actually, it calls to bear the entire context of that whole Psalm, right? That if we go back and read the whole thing, you know, that, we should know the Psalm so well that, oh, yes, that's from that Psalm, and here's the whole Psalm in my brain as, as I'm hearing this. And not only that, but that the context of that psalm and that series of psalms within the whole history and narrative of of israel and now suddenly it all makes sense in that one kind of invocation of one verse the whole story of god who becomes king is being told 
right? And I, I hope we have that kind of experience in liturgy because that's that's what's happening. You know, this is the the way scripture is used within the scriptures themselves. St. Paul will do this. He'll, he'll just quote a random verse, it seems. And you sort of think, well, that's interesting. You know, what, what made him think of that? Well, if you go and look at look up that verse in its context, and then within the whole history and story of Israel, then you get the whole world that kind of opens up before you. And so, you know, it might think, okay, and the, we're just taking little words from Psalms in order to break up this hymnography in this part of the service of Vespers because we had too many hymns. And so, you know, it's just a kind of random um, act, but it's not. It actually has this whole world that opens up in front of us every time something like this is, is invoked. And so I encourage, you know, as you're preparing for, for to go to a, a feast like the Annunciation, you know, have a look ahead of time and see, okay, what psalm is that from? And then let me go and read that psalm. And let me make sense of that psalm within the context of all the psalms, within the context of Israel. And, you know, the whole service that then it, it unfolds before you, it doesn't just become word after word and, you know, kind of just thematically connected thoughts or whatever. It actually... There's a whole vista that, that kind of opens up in front of us and we can enter into the, the solemnity of the feast, the celebration so much more meaningfully and um, deliberately and, and it helps us to enact the kingdom. I think what you said is so important because I think one of the criticisms that can be placed against, you know, uh, uh, tools like this, well, let's just, let's just find a quote that's nice, right? Mm-hmm. Let's just find a quote that kind of proves our point or something like that. It's embroidery, um, really. Like it's just sort of, you know, you're stitching in some right. kind of, well, that's pretty. <laughs> or, or like, or, or if, if I were to read it like really cynically, I might say like, oh, well, what about, why aren't you quoting the passages where, you know, God is doing bad things or something, right? Mm. Um, and in the Old Testament or whatever it might be, like, well, we pick all the nice quotes. But I think when the when the new testament is actually you know providing quotes in the um in its texts you know you might imagine the the narrative of jesus on the cross right and um they divided my garments among themselves and for my clothing they cast lots right these callbacks to the psalms um they aren't they uh they they aren't being done and and in our liturgy here proclaim from day to day the glad tidings of the salvation of our god these quotes are not being plucked out so that we only focus on that line to the and then try and the the people who are putting this together aren't trying to make us forget about the rest of the psalm what it is is it's an invitation Hmm. right it's a box that contains everything and all you have to do is open that box and it's all there for you and it's consistent with the trajectory of the scriptures yeah, they're illusions, and an allu- illusion is always, you know, an invitation like that, right? And we do this still a little bit, you know, but culturally, it's it's a it's now somewhat foreign to us to to kind of speak in these terms. We have a much more kind of uh, utilitarian use of language these days. You know, we we say, you know, beginning, middle, and end of everything that we mean when we kind of make an argument for something, right? Whereas it wasn't that long ago that the the kind of rhetorical practice was to to use allusion, right? I could just sort of quote a part of something to you. And then suddenly the entirety of that text, you know, it, within its context, you know, is brought to bear, 
you know, on, on the situation. And so you're not just dealing with the words that I've laid out to you, but you somehow have to contend, you know, with everything I, I've just referred to. Um, and uh, you know, that's how scripture interprets scripture. It's how, you know, say the apostolic writers are, are using, you know, scripture. It's how our Lord himself, you know, when he says from the, the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, it's not just that. It's the entirety of the psalm. Right. So go and read how that ends. And that matters a lot. Uh, and people who knew the Psalms, you know, would have heard all of that and they would have understood. And in fact, a lot of the conflict that exists in the Gospels, you know, when our Lord will quote part of the Torah is that, you know, the scribes and Pharisees and, and others, the, the, the rulers in Judea, are, they know what he's talking about. When he makes these allusions, he's actually, he's making this claim that what God has promised to do is being fulfilled. He's prophetically enacting that. And he makes these, these kind of comments. And, and you think, well, why are they reacting so strongly? Surely in those very words, there's not enough to get upset about with, because they know the whole context of what he's saying. He's making claims by these illusions that, you know, that they can't countenance. And so, I mean, this is just the way that the scriptures, particularly the New Testament's commentary and gloss on the, on the, the scriptures of the Old Testament, it's how it's, it's framed. And we, we should learn how to, to kind of use that. But what it also means about the, the liturgy that we're talking about is that in some ways, Despite the monks, you know, uh, misgivings about the, the growth of the hymnography and so forth of the church, whether it's the Octoichos, the, the Triodian, the Pentecostarian, all of these, uh, the Menaean, all these hymns that are, are written, uh, you know, to kind of celebrate all these commemorations, you know, although there's this explosion of that and they think, well, this is not good. It's, it's getting away from, from the scriptures. In fact, they, themselves, this whole way that the liturgy evolves and develops, it works in the same way the New Testament does. It works as this gloss on the scriptures. And so, so much of, you know, what we're continuing to be invited into is to kind of, you know, return to sources, return to the scriptures by entering into liturgy, right? So despite, as I say, the monk's misgivings about this, it's the same thing at work. You know, what St. Paul's doing in his letters, what the, the, the gospel writers are doing in the gospels, the hymnographers are doing with the hymns of the church and in the kind of framing of the liturgy. It's not, you know, a departure from the scriptures. It is, in fact, an invitation, kind of, kind of wider windows and doors back into the scriptural narrative that, that, that's at stake here. And, and using things like these interspersed psalms and so forth is one of the key ways that they do that. You've just finished listening to another public episode of Enacting the Kingdom. If you're getting value from this podcast and you'd like to support the show, you can head over to pryingpriest.com to become a patron. Also, five-star ratings with written reviews go a long way to getting the word out there about this show. Also, since Enacting the Kingdom is social media free, any word-of-mouth recommendations you can make to your friends and family would be greatly appreciated. We'll see you next time.